Hello and good afternoon and happy holidays to all of my AOWs. Today's show is incredible. Today I interview Dr. Sam Raman. She is a gynecologist in Chicago. She is a member of ISHWISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And today we talk about cultural, sexual, and menopausal health differences. It's a really wild ride, and I cannot wait for you to listen to us explore all of the questions, all of the gaps in women's health care that we want to know about together. You also might know her as Gyno Girl on Instagram, and you are in for a treat. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Today's podcast is sponsored by Sweet Spot Labs. Intimate dryness is one of the menopausal symptoms I get asked about most in my practice. And it's no wonder estrogen is to the vulva what collagen is to the face. As estrogen decreases, so does the natural moisture in your intimate skin, such as the labia and hair-bearing areas, which can lead to itching, burning, and increased sensitivity. The product I recommend to rescue intimate skin from this discomfort is Rescue Balm from Sweet Spot Labs. No joke. It's an ultra rich intimate moisturizer that is 100% naturally derived and packaged with active levels of collide oatmeal, zinc oxide, sweet almond oil to soothe and protect intimate skin. I not only love what's in it because it really works, but also what's not in it. So Sweet Spot Labs has been pioneering clean, intimate skincare since 2003. And they formulate without any common irritants, allergens, hormones, hormone disruptors, or yeast food sources. Rescue Balm is free from water, preservatives, fragrance, silicones, propylene, glycol, steroids, hormones, parabens, glycerin, and even from poor clogging ingredients like coconut oil, just to name a few. And like all Sweet Spot Labs products, Rescue Balm is hypoallergenic and clinically proven by unbiased third-party gynecologists and dermatologists to be non-irritating on intimate skin, even with daily use. That's why I really, really feel comfortable recommending it to anyone and everyone, including me, and even those with very sensitive skin. Visit Sweet Spot Labs and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off your first order. That's S-W-E-E-T-S-P-O-T-L-A-B-S.com and use code Dr. Hirsch for 20% off. I am so excited for today's episode. Dr. Ramon and I have been working really hard to get a time together. And it's so wonderful to have you on. If you don't know, she's Gyno Girl on Instagram. And uh, I can't wait to get into a really fun conversation. Uh, before we jumped on, we thought we would, you know, we really wanted to explore in today's show um, with kind of an expert here on some of the different experiences through menopause, particularly through the lens of women of color, different races, different religions. And that's something that uh, I guess I'm doing two back-to-back episodes of uncomfortable topics. I did transgender medicine with Dr. Kling last week. and um, But I'm really excited to have you on. So welcome. 
Oh, thank you. You know, one of the things that at the International Society of the Study of Women's Sexual Health annual meeting last year, uh, to kind of kick this off, I found the lecture talk topic um, that was given there on uh, sexuality experience through the lenses of different cultures. So fascinating. And, you know, I know you spoke at that as well. And I kind of wanted to use that as a little jumping point. I know you're involved a lot in Ishwish on the organizational committee, but what was kind of the impetus for that topic, that talk? Yeah, I think... um... You know, we all know that like how we view sex is really, um, you know, it's based on how we grow up, right? It's based on what we learn and how we're educated and how we're acculturated. And I think that, um, you know, obviously, you know, when it comes to any kind of moral compass and sex is in that arena of like, you know, where people view morality, um, religion actually dictates a lot of that. And for so many of us growing up in different cultures, I mean, I grew up in, I'm a, I was born here in the States, but my parents are immigrants from Pakistan. And so for me, like it was always this big, and I'm one of four kids, but I have three brothers. So mm-hmm. believe me, we had no discussions on reproductive anything. <laughs> when I had my period, I was like, what, what's happening right now? <laughs> and so, and so, you know, like even when I got married and I tried to have, I mean, here I am a gynecologist. I got married as an attending physician. Um, and you know, I had, I had sexual dysfunction because, you know, I had been in, in, in born and raised into this environment where like, we don't talk about sex. You don't talk, you don't talk about what's happening with the others, with the other sex. It's like, so, you know, and, and I think sometimes when people come to America, when my parents immigrated, like they were trying to hold on to their culture so much that it was mm-hmm. like really indoctrinated. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I grew up in a very conservative background and when you know, I, you know, when you can't consummate your marriage, you realize mm-hmm. what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. And so then you just, you know, then you take a step back and, and, and you get into that area of sexual medicine and, and you realize how much religion and culture, because, you know, it's not only just like the Abrahamic religions. I mean, I see brown women from all, from everywhere and they're Hindus and Sikhs and atheists and whatever, mm-hmm. but it just might be indoctrinated in the culture because there's so much stigmatization around, um, you know, having sex or not having sex or do we say the word sex like can mm. you say the word penis can you i mean yeah. obviously we're we're censored here in america just just imagine around the world like how much you know how many how different things are and you know and that's where it kind of led me into the exploration of of you know diving deep into sexual medicine and that's why uh you know my, a lot of my research has been you know i'm muslim so it's been around muslim women and sexual medicine but or sexual dysfunction, but, um, you know, I, I embrace, you know, the, all the religions and how they may impact women and how they interpret their sexual beliefs. I mean, I think it's so important because as a white woman myself, certainly I have had some, probably not as many as you, because there's probably some selection bias, right? Yeah. Uh, different races and religions, but you always, you don't want to say the wrong thing. Right. Um, and you want to ask questions, but you also don't want to sound as though you're, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like being creepy when you ask questions, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The white colonizer. 
You don't. You really don't. And, you know, for me, actually, funny enough, I was a women's studies major in college and I spent so much time learning about how this is, you know, a little bit different. But, you know, you can't go into another community, another culture, another country and say um, this is genital mutilation. Right. Because. Right. Exactly. And I know all that, but I still don't know the right things to say. Right. So, you know, I think this is such an interesting topic. Um, Let's and and also, too, I have, you know, friends of different religions, cultures, and, and it's still I never even with my friends, you know, I find it's it's a hard topic to breach because you just don't want to say either sound silly or sound ignorant or say the wrong thing. Right. So let's kind of start with breaking down maybe some of like, you know, we could start with um, Muslim women or, you know, what are some of the what are what are some of the beliefs around sex and sexual health in different cultures? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, especially when it comes to like menopause and management, there's a whole idea of like the period being, you know, sort of, um, you know, unsanitary and a lot of religions don't allow you to participate in religious activities during the mm-hmm. menstruation. So that mm-hmm. kind of changes when people mentor menopause and, people, and some people feel more power. I guess in general, yeah. like when we talk about sex um, and, you know, especially Islam, maybe the Abrahamic religions and some of the other religions in general, like, um, you know, it's, it's a no-go, right? Like you don't talk about it. <laughs> but if you look at the history, I mean, at least when I talk about like Islamic history, like in the past, in, in centuries when, you know, sort of like Islam was spreading and it was on the rise, like sex was like normalized. It was like a normal thing that was discussed. And, um, you know, especially in the context of marriage, it was always sort of that. But if it was like not in the context of marriage, it was like a don't ask, don't tell thing. But what's mm-hmm. interesting, it, overall, the religion has been historically very sex positive. Um, but most Muslim countries at some point have been colonized. And so a lot of the puritanical beliefs were actually shed and 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 actually came over from the colonizers that colonized all the Muslim countries. And so that's when a lot of the shifts happen. Because even if you think about like India and like, you know, you know, the Kama Sutra, like normal sexuality that existed at that time. Yeah. The thoughts, you know, it was, it was, it was the puritanical beliefs that came over with colonization that kind of changed the rhetoric and actually made people like, you know, believe that sex was more taboo than it, well, than it actually is. Yeah. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, a point that, that even other Muslims don't even know, like they don't know the history of like, you know, when it comes to Islam and sexuality and what that means. And so they just think, oh, and, and they incorporate this, like, oh no, no, I can't talk about this, but I'm glad that you're bringing it up to me. Like patients are like, oh, I'm so glad because I just don't feel like talking about it with anyone. But, um, and, and when you tell them like, you know, historically, like this is what the religion was about and da, da, da. And then they're like, wow. So I think that it's just like what, what has been adapted over time and acculturated through all the meshing of different cultures, uh, you know, through colonization and other things. But in general, like most of these religions considered, you know, talking about sex or sex out of marriage or, you know, different types of sex to be taboo, right? It's a stigma mm-hmm. to say. On it. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about reproductive health. If you have your period, don't mention it. Like, you know, because a lot of religions have um, prohibitory times, uh, you know, with either when you're menstruating or whatever that you can't, right. you can't pray, you can't fast or, you know, you can't go to temple, whatever the case may be. Right. And so I, interesting, um, you know, as as I see men, these women in their midlife and what that means for them religiously, too, that's a different um, sort of aspect as well. There, I cannot fathom how how much there is to unpack. I, you could have yeah. a whole podcast on this. 
Like, Absolutely. I'm kind of thinking about like a spinoff of just like different cultures and, and sexuality and the history of it because it oh. is wild and fascinating. Yes, it's absolutely. wild. And people are, you know, looking into it more because more people are interested in it now. And I think that now that we have our voices out there with social media, but it's it's very interesting. And, and, and you know, at the end of the day, you feel like if you can just educate the masses, like these stigmas wouldn't exist. Maybe some of the sexual violence around it could be eliminated. But it's just a matter of, you know, I always say like, and, and even among the, the medical people in these communities, like you got to educate the providers too, right? Like it's just a yeah. matter of, I mean, we know like how many, how many great certified menopause providers are there or sexual medicine providers are. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I mean, I've had I'm them just, all on my show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it makes me think so much about how, um, and this is a little bit of a spinoff of something that you, two things that you said, something that you said earlier, but um, so much of sex is mental, right? It's, 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 it's mental, right? And when, as women, we've been told, if you have been told your whole life that it's this taboo or it's this shameful thing, or it's this thing that we don't talk about, thing that we don't do, da, 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 you don't know anything about it. When you go to attempt it, of course, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's going to be scary. It's yeah. going to be traumatizing. It's going to be painful. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's so, I think that point in and of itself, I mean, I don't even know how to unpack it, but um, I think that I mean, that is an experience for many different cultures for many different yeah. reasons. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it blows my mind too, because I know a lot of other Muslim doctors, females, whatever. And that's one time, one time we always talk about like, yeah, I couldn't have sex my first night. <laughs> like, it's like, what the hell? You know, like I'm in the vagina all the time. <laughs> like I know the pelvic muscles, like this is my area. And of course, you know, we don't, you know, in training, at least, you know, most of our training was done after training, right? Like most of our stuff has been done, but you yeah. know, like when you're in residency and I did my residency 15 years ago, so I'm even like, probably more dated than you of course but I think that like no. you know even back then sexual medicine was not something like you saw oh that patient has vaginismus and that's it you know like yeah. oh she needs to just chill out and have a glass of wine well she's Muslim she doesn't drink wine so what do you <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to be laughing but I mean the way you say it it, it makes me kind of giggle but yeah because what kind of advice are you giving that patient I mean I just would just that's what my attendings would say to me and I was like right <laughs> Right. Right. I mean, how those things are so those things are true. The sad thing is they're absolutely true. Right. I can't tell you the number of patients, um, even if it, if it's vaginismus or even if it's vaginal atrophy, that's it's the go have a glass of wine or watch some porn. And those things are in no way, shape or form going to help the problem. (laughs) Um, and, and so there is a lot of work to do and it is exciting to think how far we have come in 15 years, but also again, how, how, how much farther we have to go. And I think, you know, educating clinicians at Ishwish and social media and talking about these and podcasting is one way to really help people, um, you know, think through what are their social cultural upbringings that have shaped their psyche and their mental, uh, awareness, body awareness around, you know, sex and just all of the things that that means. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So one other thing I wanted to, so let's talk about the menstruating piece, because I think I have a lot of clinicians who listen to the show, and I think this would be so important to talk about. Um, but tell me a little bit more and, and teach me too, um, you know, about the rules about menstruating and what that means in certain cultures for women. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, in so many cultures, menstrual blood is considered dirty and makes you unhygienic. And, you know, as opposed to a natural process that we shouldn't, you know, you know, applaud for patients when, you know, when the, when the patients hit puberty, you know, that's why a lot of, a lot of girls are like, oh my God, I'm so scared to hit puberty because, you know, da, da, da. and so, and it, it's, you know, it's, and I hear, and, and I hear um, girls say this all the time, because I do puberty talks in Chicago sometimes with uh, wow. different schools, but um, I think that what's interesting is that, you know, I mean, you have the whole spectrum, right? You have patients that you have cultures that have menstrual huts where, you know, back in the day, they, in these villages, they have to go to huts when they have their periods. And, you know, some people have these bad, you know, outcomes happening because, you know, there, I think there was infection. a case in Nepal. Yeah, infection. I think there's a case in Nepal where one of the huts caught fire and it was a menstrual <gasps> hut. This patient died because she was shunned because of her period. You know, it's like, you know, and so there's all these things around it, like, you know, around the, the, the shame and the taboo and the, and the what's considered dirtiness of menstrual cycle. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes what I find is like when my patients are coming to me midlife, you know, some of them are super excited, like, oh, you know, I don't have to like miss my prayers anymore because, you know, you get like, and at yeah. least, you know, in, in Islam, you're, you're not obligated to pray during your menstrual cycle. You're not obligated to fast during your menstrual cycle. Um, and, you know, you know, a lot of other things around that. And I think it's similar in other cultures where, you know, you don't have to go to temple, you don't have to do other things, you know, in more, in the more traditional, um, cultures. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of my patients are like, oh, so now I don't have to worry about that. And, you know, um, the one aspect of that is the whole like genital urinary syndrome and menopause, right? Like when patients start having all these vaginal symptoms and they feel obligated to have sex with their husbands or partners or whoever they are. And they're like, yeah, I mean, do I have to do this? Like, it's so painful. And you're just like, <laughs> like, let, let's let's unpack all of this right now because this should be an enjoyable experience. Yes. And yeah. so like, there's a couple of different layers here. Like, do I have to do this? No, of course you don't have to, but is there a reason that's stopping you? You know, is, you know, we approach it biopsychosocial, right? Some sort of like, obviously biology of the, of the of menopause and how it affects our vagina and our clitoris and our vulva and our bladder. But yeah. then there's also like, you know, the, the psychosocial component, the social component around the culture, like, yeah. you know, like, you know, now I can't even be, you know, cause I think a lot of patients, a lot of patients or Muslim patients that I have will still be like, well, now I don't have, I can't reproduce. So I don't have to have sex. And I'm just like, you know, Islamically like sex was always for pleasure first and reproduction second, like in the context of marriage, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think that, you know, that's a whole other layer to unpack because some of some patients start feeling really empowered and other patients are like, you know, no one tells me, they just tell me to suck it up. You know, like I just, oh. I have to, I have I have to woman up or whatever, you know, like, yeah. so they become like these really stoic women who kind of just deal with, and, you know, for me, I, I'm very cognizant of the fact, of course, heart disease is still the number one killer in women, but in South Asians, particularly, I think the statistic is we make up of like 25% of the world population, but 67% of the world heart disease. Wow. So that means Jeez. it's really staggering. So I mean, yeah. and, and two big South Asian centers for heart disease in America and so I always have to emphasize this with my patients, like, you know, yeah. if you're a candidate for hormone therapy, like, 
let's yeah. talk about it because you know there might yeah. be there's protective effects that might be in place and we know that there's you know dementia that you know might be protected you know so i talked to the whole issue but of course the sex stuff always comes up but yeah. i always like especially with these patients i'm like let's talk about the fact that heart disease is still going to be the one the, the thing that's likely to kill you you know mm-hmm. so let's talk about what that means and you know, especially you're South Asian and, you know, and people always midsection fat and visceral fat and all this stuff always comes up. And so um, uh, I think that, you know, uh, these are issues that I'm aware of that I always bring up with my patients, but um, they like to bring up some of those factors too about, wow. about the changes and, and, and what their reproductive cycle is mm-hmm. and how it kind of frees them religiously and all this stuff. <clears throat> so interesting. It's funny because I feel like, um, I, I, in American culture, whatever that might be, hodgepodge, um, you know, I feel as though (laughs) menopause is definitely this like loss of youth, loss of, um, like, oh my gosh, I, you know, menopause is an interesting thing. And I think that the tide is trying to, 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 to turn, but certainly I think in, in the, the majority of kind of what the fears are is that now I'm old and washed up and I can't reproduce. So I, I am, you know, yeah. Oh gosh, so much to unpack. This is like mind blowing. Question for you though. Um, uh-huh. How much research is done on menopausal, um, on menopause in general, whether it's hormone therapy or natural menopause or interventions um, on non-white women? Yeah, I think it's pretty scant. I mean, I, I try to read up on the articles. I know that um, in the menopause journal, they published um something in October on South Asian immigrants when it comes to menopause and how they kind of view it. Um, And there's some data out there on black and Latina um, patients going through menopause and how their average age of menopause is, is earlier. Like, you know, um, which I think, you know, it's again, Mm -hmm. very rooted in in culture and and society, um, how we deal with, you know, and how we treat um, uh, women of color. Right. So I think, Mm -hmm. When I was reading the last article on Black women and Latino, I think it was a Swan study, maybe, mm-hmm. um, and how um, Black women and Latino women enter menopause early, and what might be factors involved. And there's that whole theory about weathering with Black women and how you know the chronic uh, systemic racism and stresses mm-hmm. around you know being Black in America um, and dealing with all the stressors that Black women particularly have to face you know, kind of um, maybe one of the factors that puts them into earlier menopause than, you know, uh, you know, other white oh. women or non-black women, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. talk about, you know, ovaries are rapidly reproducing cells. And if there's stressors, we know things like smoking can cause earlier uh, menopause. And also I have to say, I, I think that a lot of of, of our uh, those groups of women end up with hysterectomies maybe for fibroids and then yep. surgical menopause taking out both their ovaries a, 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 because Ooh. they're there yeah right yeah. They, yeah. I remember when I was an OBGYN resident which I was in 2010 um, uh-huh. or 2009 you know there was that was sort of still the it seemed to be it's a blur of a year but sort of around yeah. the time where we thought oh maybe we shouldn't just take out ovaries yeah, yeah. <laughs> right but <laughs> I still see so many women that um you know, especially um, my African-American patients who've had uh, hysterectomies for fibroids and then surgical menopause just because. Yes. And, you know, no, they weren't treated with hormone therapy afterwards and you've got right. chronic disease. And and, and, and yeah. yes, I think that is a hypothesis that sits 
that sits with me. It, it, I, right. I can feel it. Right. And, and right. we need data. We need, we, we need data to show that we need so right. much more data. There's a huge gap. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, and it, and it speaks to, you know, unfortunately the implicit bias that we know exists yeah. in medicine, you know, yeah. especially when it comes to women yeah. uh, and then women of color even more, but, um, you know, these, these patients are often just not heard and, and you hear it all the time too. Like I've told seven or eight doctors this and they tell me, oh, it's in your head or you got depressed or whatever. Of course, you know, depression might be a factor because all this stuff has been happening to you. And now, of For course, sure. I would, uh, but I mean, you know, just to tell someone that this is physiologic hormonal shifting that's happening and this is not in your head is really life-changing for so many patients don't you find that like they oh sometimes my gosh. Crying, like, it's not in my head oh my god thank you I, all, every day every day yeah. and I, yeah. I think that's the addicting part of doing you know medicine for women in midlife is because there is it's such a f- interesting field because there are so many layers of social and cultural norms as well as then physiology and medicine that you kind of help un- people unpack yeah. yeah and and yeah. and when they do have that aha moment of like it's not just me i'm not crazy right yeah yeah it's like of course you're not <laughs> yes <laughs> i know and it's like you know because no one studied us before like they're just yeah. telling you this is hysteria you know whatever it is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow so, this I mean, is yeah so i Obviously, there's not enough research done on women in general, of course, women in color, of color. I mean, I think I've, I've looked in, in, in even in their international journals, there'll be like one study on Malaysian women and menopause and how, you know, they don't ha- they don't have enough information and they just kind of suck it up. And same with like Iranian women. I've read a study like the same thing, you know, so it's like one of these things where people are starting to kind of like, you know, do these surveys on these patients. Um, but, you know. Uh, the the bottom line is education is missing. I mean, I think no. across the board, you know, when you see any of this stuff, it's like, you know, we've failed women when it comes to I sexual on every front, right? And and especially, you know, adult sexual education. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can, I can do puberty talks all day, but when someone hits adulthood, it's, so that's why when I have a 40 year old in my office, I'm like, let's talk about what might be happening over the next 10 years. I know you're here for something totally different, but oh. Okay. This is going to happen. And this, you're going to think, and they're like, what, what? (laughs) I'm like estrogen receptors everywhere. Imagine what's (laughs) happening to your body. It's it's very like, you know, uh, that's, that's, you know, we're doctors, we're educators, right? Like this is who we are by definition. So we have to be out there doing the work so that, you know, nothing, nothing can be implicit bias more than when you educate a patient enough that they can then say, you're not listening to me. I know this is happening to me because of menopause. And I, I, you know, I, I heard it on Dr. Hirsch's show, you know, like whatever, you know, and this is happening to me and you need to listen. Yeah. I know. And and if you actually say that, I mean, you know, we've all, um, you know, biases everywhere. And even to those of us who are acutely aware of a bias, like we still might demonstrate bias. And I remember the first time, like, and you know, transgender medicine is one thing that I've always been trying to work more toward because we don't learn enough about it. And I, the first time, like five or six years ago, someone's like, you're not listening to me. And it was, I was like, oh, oh. wow, please let me listen to you. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. Tell me. But then you don't want to put the onus on them too. Like it shouldn't be your responsibility to educate me, but I appreciate you so that I can help you better. You know, I know. I know. Um, yeah, I stumbled through my entire podcast last week with Dr. Dr. Jewel Kling, where we talked about transgender medicine, but there is so much to learn and we want to help our patients. We want to be as inclusive as we can, but there is essentially kind of, you know, 
the implicit bias runs really deep. It runs really deep. And if you're like, even I have, yeah. Yeah. So I have a question and maybe I don't know if you know the answer, but you know, in Pakistan, in India, in Iran, in, you know, are, are there clinicians who are empowered to do this kind of research or is it mostly research on immigrants to the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely like a handful of, um, you know, clinicians, probably, you know, just like there are, you know, a handful, handful of people. clinicians here. There's, like, there's less, probably less of a handful over less, there. But I mean, like I've seen, you know, like maybe like 10 articles here and there on different, you know, people trying to research this and that. And yeah. I mean, I have patients, you know, like I have like at least 10 patients that are in Pakistan, actually, that like yeah. they WhatsApp me and we talk and. Yeah. Um, I try to, and they come to America every, every few months, you know, to visit yep. family and then they'll pick up their prescriptions or whatever, Yeah. Right. but it's something we definitely like, um, you know, talk yeah. about, they're like, oh my God, I wish you could just come here and open a clinic. And I was like, <laughs> 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 but maybe when my kids are older, you know, but like, um, I know. but I think one of our, our things should really be like, you know, we should educate as many international doctors that we can as well. The only problem is the resources are still lacking, right? Like they yeah. don't have the same availability yeah. of some of the medications that we have. So right. like, I mean, that's one of the problems I'm running into with one of my patients in Pakistan now. She's like, well, I can't get there and I can't get anything equivalent here. And she's like dying of hot flashes. And I'm just like, oh, can I really? really? Is that something I can do? <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, uh, so. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, um, you know, as the world gets sort of smaller, mm-hmm. um, it's really still hard to think. It's so hard to not be sort of U.S. centric. Me for sure. Um, and it and it is sort of a wake up call and a reminder when we think these medications aren't even available there. So, sure, yeah. you could do telemedicine there. You could do etc. We could try to make, make connections and blah blah blah. But sometimes it comes comes down to the basics. How do right. they pay for them? How do they get labs? How do yeah. what do you do if someone has bleeding? All of those things. Right, exactly. And I have to say, the patients I have in Pakistan are the ones that are have able to pay. They have resources. the money. Yeah, yeah, they have the resources, and it's like, oh man, I wish you know the other, you know, like the more the village area ones can really get, it, you know, but they just they suck it up and they just deal with it, and you know, and it's yeah. unfortunate. I mean, and, and, and we see a lot of immigrants here in downtown Chicago, obviously like people that have immigrated recently or in the last, you know, 50 years or whatever. But I think, you know, now I have a lot of young patients that come to me and I'm like, well, what about your mom? Like, you know, do you ever talk to her about, you know, these issues? And and so some of the patients are sending their moms in now. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, remember that, like, you know, I'm like, huh, I never talked to her about that. And yeah. you probably know, like when you talk to some uh, patients, they're like, well, my, you know, especially I think our black patients who inevitably their moms had hysterectomies, you know, cause that's what they did to black women back in the day. You know? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. And they're like, well, we don't know, you know, we had, that she had a hysterectomy. And da, da, da. For so, sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, I, not even, you know, a few years ago being in resident, being in a resident clinic where I was precepting, um, you know, the young, re- the young residents, the residents at all the places I've been Cleveland clinic, Ohio state. I mean, the discrepancy in care, it's it's weighs on you. It's hard um, because the the what we really know is that having your ovaries removed, having your estrogen removed, and you know being castrated when it's mm-hmm. unnecessary 
causes a lot of chronic disease burden. And it is wild, you know, that um, something as clear and obvious as that wasn't really thought through and and, and, and is now more, but it's still, it's still not perfect. It's not perfect. It's not perfect at all. And in, um, it's hard because there is a lot of discrepancy in care and and what people are offered in counseling. Right. And you still battle clinicians on, yeah, she can have hormone therapy. It's okay. Like she's not a, you know, she, you know, and they're like, wow, I mean, she might get a heart, you know, and you're just like, please read the latest data. Let me send you a couple. I know it's, it's always an uphill battle. And, and it's, it's, it's one that I enjoy fighting, but, um, you know, so I have a question for you. I wanted to circle back. Um, when you have like your scenario, or I've actually had the scenario too, of um, not being able to consummate a marriage. Well, how do you help women through that? How do you help other women through that? Yeah. I mean, um, obviously we have to understand, you know, why it's happening, right? Is this pure anxiety vaginismus? Like your, your pelvic floor is, and you've never used tampons or, you know, whatever. And, and this is all of a sudden, like you just like, oh shit, I don't want to do this because it might be painful. Or, you know, do you have other like, um, you know, um, biological reasons that this is happening? Do you have vestibulodynia related to nerves, muscles, uh, hormones, right? Or um, is this, is this something, you know, even deeper? It, is this something deeper that we have to, or do you have something that started out as vaginismus and now you have complete pelvic floor dysfunction because your muscles are super hypertonic and, you know, so, mm-hmm. so you know how it is, they have a combination of all these things probably, but, yeah. um, you know, it just, you start out with the exam and you do what you can, you tell patients, I mean, we traumatize patients a lot, right? As gynecologists, yeah. I think that over time, like, you know, that first bad exam can traumatize them for the rest of their gynecologic life, you know? Mm-hmm. So I always am cognizant of that. And I, you know, try to say, you know, I, I don't want to traumatize your situation. We're going to do what we can. Let me get an exam. Let me make sure you don't have an imperfect hymen or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then, you know, we have a discussion around it. You know, we normalize that, you know, 40% of patients probably experience sexual pain at some point. And, you know, some, it's much more common in, in our culture, patients that have high evidence of religiosity, you know, we've seen some, you know, abstracts that reflect that. So, um, you know, it's, first of all, nice for patients to feel like, okay, they're so it's not just, alone, right? Mm-hmm. Because like, the biggest thing I hear is like a 30 year old, somebody not coming in trying to have sex for the first time. She goes, I see, she goes, aren't there like 15 year olds that get pregnant because they're having sex. And I'm like 32 and I can't get pregnant. And I'm just like, okay, first of all, like there's a lot of issues that go around sexual. And, you know, we have a discussion yeah. around the biopsychosocial aspects of it. And, and, you know, are you in a good relationship? And most of the time the husbands are there, they're, you know, yeah. they're with them and supporting them. You want to make sure that they don't have all of a sudden, um, you know, um, uh, you know, issues with, um, um, uh, erectile dysfunction, which can evolve obviously with unconsummated marriages, which, yeah. um, data, data to support that as well. Yeah. And so once we have a discussion, then, you know, obviously pelvic floor therapy, vaginal dilator therapy, sometimes yeah. Botox and, yeah. you know, sex therapy and relationship therapy. I mean, all that, you know, has to play its effect mm. and if hormones that are needed, we use hormones, you know? And so yeah. it's like one of the things where we just have to unpack it. And you need time for that, right? So you yeah. can't be a 40, 40 patient a day practice and sit, no. th- sit there for an hour with somebody to talk about, yeah. you know, how their religion has shaped their, you know, lack of understanding of sex or whatever. And now they can't consummate their marriages. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I, I love your, 
I love that, that there is hope that there are things that women can do. And you've seen a lot of success with people because this is not an isolated problem. This is not a unique problem. This is a big problem. This is a common, uh, and we shouldn't even call it problem, but just yeah. thing, a thing that happens to women, right? right? We need right. to have, it's, look, having something inside you is, is arguably a lot harder. And, yeah. you know, yeah. our bodies are different. Our anatomy is different. And I right. love that you have worked through this and really thought this through so much. I have loved having you on. You have to come back. Yes. Um, this was so much fun. I can't, I, my head is spinning. I'm going to, I'm going to get off with you and just be thinking about this conversation all day, because it's not one that I would say, even myself, I have all the time. It reminds me of how, uh, even for me, you know, um, narrow thinking, uh, maybe I could be, or in my zone that I could be. And I want to experience the growing pains to, to be sure that I am always inclusive and always getting better and always getting stronger so that I can help help more women, but you really opened my eyes to a lot of things, including, you know, how, how much work we have to do, but also on a positive note, hopefully yeah. there's been a lot of work that we have done. Absolutely. I think for sure. And I think that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of doctor, a lot of clinicians, a lot of therapists, a lot of people out there doing, doing the work. So doing the work, we to, um, you know, come together and, and help each other out and educate us on, you know, areas that we're not as savvy. Like I'm always tuning, I'm going to turn into this transgender talk that you just did. Cause I mean, <laughs> One area I really want to get right. <laughs> yeah. I really do too. And uh, I got a, I got a ways to go, but I'm okay to admit it. So, yeah. well, thank yeah. you so much. I can't wait to have you back yeah. on again soon. Yeah. I appreciate it. And you guys yeah. follow Gyno Girl on Instagram. I will link all of her um, links down below in the description of the show. And I'll see you guys next week for a brand new yeah. episode. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Episode.